tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, hello. We're back. I can't, well, we from yesterday. I mean, you know, we, we just started, but yesterday, <laughs> yesterday, it all sort of blends together here when one is thinking the eternal verities. But let's get on with the the show, as it were. Let's pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit; they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, let us open the big book on the coffee table, the Bible. And what if it's a smaller just, book? What if it's like the pocket-sized version of the Bible? Well, it's, it's you know, you want the whole schmear, the, the big part and the small part, you know? I, you know, that's, that's something that does kind of make me crazy, that people say, well, I don't read the Old Testament. I just read the New Testament stuff about Jesus, because the Old Testament, that's old. You can't understand the New Testament without reference to the Old Testament, if you really want to understand it. The New Testament is, we believe, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, I think it's real important um, to to read the whole the whole deal. And I always, if you're if you want to get serious about Bible study, I always recommend the best starter program is uh, Jeff and Emily Cabin's Great Adventure. It's what we used to call Bible history. It gives you the Bible timeline. It's not it's not uh, heavy. It's not difficult. And I've heard people who think that they're real scholars get all upset about it. Well, it's too fundamentalist. It's no, it's not. It's it's um, it takes the Bible as it's written. And, you know, the, uh, Pope Benedict XVI talked about the the hermeneutic of continuity, which means, you know, continuous interpretation. The idea being that, that uh, the Bible is a book written by the Holy Spirit uh, through human authors. It's a collection, rather. It's not a book. It's a library of, of 70 books. And it's written by the Holy Spirit, and there's a continuous story. It's the story of a family that begins with Adam and Eve and ends, in a sense, with us. It goes from Adam and Eve to our Lord Jesus, and then it really extends to us. We're adopted into that family by the sacraments. So it's, in a sense, the story of our family. That's why there are genealogies, and that's why these lists of names. And there are 14 books of the Bible that you read in order to get the timeline. And then you can plug the rest of the books of the Bible in. So, well, it's not very scholarly. No, it's not. It's just very, very helpful in 
beginning to study scripture. And it, it, it you know, Jeff and Emily Cavins are perfectly good scholars, I think, and they have really done a fantastic job on this. So it's a good starter. So I just on the side there that, that um, you know, so those people who say, well, I don't really pay attention to the Old Testament. You should. All right, let's get to this wisdom. Uh, wisdom of uh, the wisdom uh, of this is called the the wisdom of Solomon, and it's one of the uh, um, people call it the Deuterocanonical books. I don't. It's inspired scripture. It's been accepted as inspired inspired scripture uh, since the beginning of the church. There were a couple of theologians who thought, well, maybe not, but uh, in general, it has always been accepted from the beginning as inspired scripture. It's in the Septuagint and has been read in the church. So even those early church fathers who didn't think it inspired, they said it's still worth reading in church or didn't think it was part of the canon. It was still inspired and worth reading in church, but we believe it's inspired. So what it's simply saying is um, that the people who are in authority have a much greater responsibility. Uh, That's what this reading is saying that, uh, here, you are in power over the multitude and lorded over throngs of people because authority was given you by the Lord and sovereignty by the Most High who shall probe your works and scrutinize your counsels. Terribly and swiftly he shall come against you. Judgment is stern for the exalted, for the, the lowly may be pardoned out of mercy, but the might, mighty shall be mightily put to the test. I think that's a, a really... Um, good reminder to all of us that that all of us have a certain authority parents have authority in their in the home and that adds responsibility to us uh no matter what your situation if you have authority well i don't have much authority do you have any do you have people working under you at your job uh do you, are you a parent of children are you a teacher of children we are responsible to one another and ultimately to the lord so that's in the book of wisdom now let's go, however, to the gospel because the gospel is really interesting and and not easy to understand. Uh, this is Luke seventeen, the eleventh uh, verse to the nineteenth, but I think it has to be read in its context. Now, uh, Jesus in 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 chapter uh, seventeen, he's talking about. We've been through the first part of the chapter, uh, forgiveness, and then the disciples say, increase our faith. But now he seems to to uh, uh, start a new section of scripture. I, I think that this is a new uh, that this the stuff we've already read in Luke the seventeenth chapter. I don't think it it uh, is as strongly related to what comes after it as what went what went before it and 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 the the internal uh, stuff like learning to trust God and so doing to root out bitterness. All right. Now it happened that as he went to Jerusalem, he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. This is important. He's going through Samaria. He starts in Galilee and he goes down through Samaria. You see, you could go down by the Jordan River or you could go down by the coast. But the shortest way to get from Galilee to the hill country of Judea in which Jerusalem was located was right through the middle of Samaria, the middle of Samaria, not the edges and Samaritans and Jews didn't get along at all. Um, I don't know that there was great danger, but there was um, great antipathy. So uh, there was always danger in travel, especially in the ancient world. But they didn't get along. So 
he entered a certain village. There he met ten men who were lepers, who stood afar, and they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, and the word is epistata, which means someone who stands over. Uh, it's kind of like boss. <laughs> it's someone who stands over. Epi is over and stata is standing. So this does relate to the uh, uh, the first reading that that when you're an authority, you're an epistata. So, okay. So when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priest. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. All right, let us discuss leprosy in its biblical sense. <clears throat> leprosy is um, not just a physical disease as far as the rabbis are concerned. And it's not just a physical disease biblically. We see leprosy when Moses uh, is confronted by Aaron, his brother, and by his sister Miriam. They say, what are we, chopped liver? Why are you running things? Shouldn't we be involved in leadership? And Moses, the scripture says at that point, was the meekest of men. And so he, he uh, uh, in his great meekness, uh, uh, they were stricken by uh, um, uh, by God with leprosy, and Moses pleaded for them. Uh, um, this is the the first, um, I, as far as I can tell, this is the first case of of leprosy, tzarat. And tzarat is not Hansen's disease. It's any. It's a whole spectrum of skin. Uh, skin diseases, and we see it in in other biblical, uh, um, well, biblical examples. But the Talmud lists seven reasons why you might be afflicted with the disease. It's a punishment for gossip. That's what Moses and 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 well, Aaron and Miriam were were speaking ill of Moses. So gossip, murder, perjury, uh, forbidden intimacies, arrogance, theft, and envy. Uh, and this is, this is the, uh, uh, the moral burden of leprosy. It's a very strange thing. I remember talking to Rabbi Lefkowitz about it, that, that leprosy was an external manifestation of, uh, an internal moral evil. Uh, and of course, Hansen's disease, that is not true. It's a virus. But this is what they were thinking. And so uh, it's very important to realize that because these lepers came to Jesus uh, to be cleansed. They said, uh, well, to be healed ultimately, but there was more to leprosy than healing. There was cleansing. You had to undergo a ritual in the temple. Now, they're in Samaria. And the one who returns to Jesus is a Samaritan. Why, why are they in Samaria? Well, lepers couldn't enter into a town. It's possible that nine of these ten lepers were, were Judeans, were Jews, and they just kind of got out of town, lest they, lest they become unclean uh, or lest they contaminate uh, uh, the towns in Judea. Uh, they went up to Samaria. Well, one of them was, at least one of them was a Samaritan. They're in Samaria. All 10 of them might be Samaritans. The, the, Jesus doesn't comment on the ethnicity of the other nine. But remember, they're in Samaria at the time. Well, one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned with a loud voice. Presumably, 
that if they were Samaritans, they wouldn't have gone to Jerusalem to perform the rituals of cleansing. They would have gone to the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. If they were Jews, they would have had to go down to the temple in Jerusalem uh, for their for their ritual cleansing. But this is very interesting. Um, I I think that the Gospel of Luke was written to people who were involved with the temple. It was a defense, I think, of St. Paul, the ministries of St. Paul and Jesus, and may even have been a, a legal document to get Theophilus, uh, who Dr. Pitry thinks was the high priest, the youngest son of Annas, to get him to withdraw the suit. So there would have been a great respect for the temple. Here Jesus is respecting the law. He's saying, do what the scriptures prescribe. And the one who comes back and thanks him is the Samaritan, who would not have been bound to go to the temple in Jerusalem, but would have been bound to go to Mount Gerizim. So this is, this is all kind of complicated in the, in, in the back or in the, in the, the backstory is very complicated, but he goes on to talk to Pharisees. This would have been when he got to Judea. When would the kingdom of God come? And of course, you know, I'm always talking about the kingdom of God, not as, as a place or a political system, but as a quality of the king. It also means the reign of the king. It can refer to a place, uh, but it primarily is the quality of kingship that's inherited by a king. And so they're looking for the kingdom of David to be restored. And they're looking for, for the, the, the rule of, 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 of Torah, of the, of the, the, the biblical, the biblical rule to be restored. And Jesus says something rather shocking. Now, this isn't in today's reading. It follows it. The kingdom of God does, does not come in a way that's seen. They won't say see here or see there. Indeed, the kingdom of God is entosimon, within you. He says to the disciples, the days will come when you'll desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, you, you, you will not see it. In other words, where Jesus is, there's the kingdom. This royal nature of God is made visible in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And let's go back to today's reading. That, that, that Samaritan perceived the kingdom of God in Jesus, and he came back. Uh, the, 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 the nine, they just, they were doing what they were told. We can't fault them. But on the other hand, they were not overwhelmed. Uh, they were not, um, uh, completely transformed, I think, by the generosity and the goodness and the healing power of God in Christ. They, they, they were going to pay, pray, and obey, which is not a bad thing, but, something amazing happened to that one, that one leper. He realized the relationship which had healed him instead of simply the process of healing. Sometimes when we come to the Lord for healing, we're so much more interested in healing than the Lord. Now, I certainly, when I need healing from the Lord, I'm a lot more interested in healing than anything else. But ultimately, even our illnesses, even our difficulties are meant to draw us closer to Christ. And that's the whole thing. The Samaritan realized it, that the real healing and the real cleansing, you see, the cleansing was something that only a priest could do. Only the priest could could offer the appropriate sacrifice to repatriate the leper to the service of God. Um, that, that 
you know, that, that um, that's what the uncleanness, that's what uncleanness was about. It made you unable to pray. It made you unable, unworthy to enter into the presence of God. And this Samaritan realized that, uh, maybe I'm, I'm putting too much into this, but the Samaritan realized that he had entered into the presence of God when he was in the presence of Christ. And that was cleansing. That was, that was uh, the ritual repatriation to the presence of God in the temple was nothing compared to being close to Christ himself. You know, uh, yesterday someone called, uh, I think they called in uh, um, that they had uh, done the Camino uh, de Santiago in Spain. And something that kind of struck them was that in so many of the pilgrimage churches, over the altar was a statue of the Blessed Mother. Why isn't it Christ? And I pointed out that that uh, that we don't need a statue of Christ because when there's Mass and when the Blessed Sacrament is reserved in the tabernacle, we don't need a statue of Jesus there. We have Jesus there. And I think that's what the leper realized. I don't need to go to the temple, uh, either on Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem, to, to find the presence of God. The presence is back in that village that I just left. And he turned around and and honored God, he perceived uh, the the fullness of God's presence in the person of Jesus. So this is a very intricate reading. Jesus did, he told them to do what the law required. And the Samaritan, uh, who would not have been obliged to go to the temple in Jerusalem anyway, um, he wouldn't have been allowed to go to the temple in Jerusalem. The Samaritan, uh, he perceived the reality of it more fully and that the kingdom of God was, was right there. All right. We're going to add just some thoughts on it. Um, maybe I'm going for a stretch, but let us now uh, take a break and we'll come back and uh, the phones will be open at 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. And we'll come back and read a few letters. Today, we'd like to thank Steve, who is listening in Wisconsin, for donating his 1981 Kawasaki motorcycle. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting relevantradio.com slash car. That's relevantradio.com slash car. Take a load off, Penny. Take a load for free. Goodness, my. Take a load off, An old hippie song. <laughs> oh, the 60s. Somehow I survived them. I don't know that the nation has, but I did, I think. All right, let's go to uh, where are we going? We're going to letters. That's where we're going. And, of course, the phones are open at 888-914-9149. So let's go to... to uh... Oh, I wanted to mention, you know, I, I don't know if you... Uh, are looking at Father Rocky's Eucharistic encounters. They really are great. They're delightful. He tells a story about caddying and uh, then another one about about some guy who just was on the road. And, you know, prayers made at Mass. You know, you can go to Mass and say, Lord, please, which is, you know, not unrelated to the reading today. And they're, they're really good stories. He does one about when he was a kid and caddied and then another one about this fellow who needed to stop traveling and... uh 
the suggestion was go tell Jesus at Mass. And he did, and the Lord worked it out. So they're, they're really good. Just go to the website and look for Eucharistic Encounters. They're really, really enjoyable. All right, let's see here. I have got so many calls, etc. Or not calls, but uh, letters. Um, Paul wrote me uh, from Minneapolis uh, about the parable of the vineyard and uh, the evil tenants. Uh, could we not consider the master? Doesn't it become simple if we consider the master as God? Yeah, I think that's right. That 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 uh, the father is the one who sends his son. Um, you know, mercy to your fellow man. Oh, this is no. This is I'm getting the wrong parable. No, I'm getting the right parable. He said um, I'm, I'm getting the wrong parable. He mentions the vineyard and the evil tenants. No, the, this is the one where the guy goes to the market and hires um, a. Um, the people are there, and then he goes back and hires them at noon, then hires them as the day is ending, and he gives them all the same pay. And, you know, the master is clearly the Lord, but um, uh, this is, I think the people, people aren't bothered by the mercy, they're bothered by the fairness. And, and the master of the vineyard says, isn't it mine to do with as I please? And I think to me, you know, the entire to me, the entire message of the book of Job is, I'm God and you're not. Most of what God does in our life is to say, I'm God and you're not. And when you get that that idea down, then you can make progress in the spiritual life. So I think, to me, that's how I think of that parable. But, you know, yes, I think you're absolutely correct that the uh, the Master is the Lord. Okay, this is the great question from Robert in Rochester Hills. Just wondering why there's so much suffering, and it seems like the good people suffer more than the bad people, uh, because evil goes after the good people. Um, this is a repeat of things I've said before, but in the scriptures it clearly says that this world was designed to be imperfect. We read that in St. Paul's letter to the Romans, that, that the creation was sub, made subject to futility by the one who subjected it. And we read in Genesis that all God looked at all the days of the week and said it, what he made was very good, except the second day, when the waters in heaven were separated from the waters of earth. So there is a flaw built into the creation. And suffering is part of that, and in a sense, the result of that flaw that God allows it. I don't know that God causes it, but he allows it. The tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, why did God bother to put that nasty tree in the, in, in the garden? So that we could choose him. Seriously, when we look at God, we want God to do all sorts of great things for us. I know that I do. Uh, I want all that God has to give. Uh, especially when it um, involves um, leisure and and fun and all that stuff. But God says to us, if there was nothing in it for you, would you still choose me? Would you still love me? And if we say no, then we were never following him, just the perks. So God allows suffering to happen in order to ask us, will you trust me? Will you honor me? Will you love me? That's That's why I think. So I hope that helps, Robert, because... Suffering is very real. All right. This is John, Mr. J from Wisconsin. When we, when we say the creed includes the Holy Spirit, the Lord, and the giver of life, why do we refer to the Holy Spirit as Lord? I thought Jesus is Lord. The Father is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And the Holy Spirit is Lord. The word Lord simply means someone who is in charge. 
like a landlord. And what can be said of in the Trinity, what can be said of the Father can be said of the Son. What can be said of the Son can be said of the Holy Spirit. What can be said of the Holy Spirit can be said of the Father. They do not work independently. Uh, they, they are in perfect unity. So that's why we can call the Holy Spirit the Lord and the giver of life. I thought the Father created life. He did, and he used the Holy Spirit to do it. Okay. Now, this one is a message that I got. Uh, um, is hell for real? Um, yes. But you have to remember that God is doing everything he possibly can to keep us out of it. I talked about that the other day, um, that um, uh, if you read C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, there is no, no one in hell who hasn't chosen it. And I think that that's important to realize, and it's important to choose God's love, even when it's kind of hard to trust him. So there you go. Let's see here. All right. This is from Diane. He who speaks evil against his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. You know, this is what we're doing, James Bible study. I'm the facilitator, and this baffles me. All right. He who speaks evil against his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. What first comes to mind is the story of Cain and Abel, which is in the law. The law is the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And in the first five books of the Bible, there are 613 clear commandments. Uh, the majority of them are thou shalt not, but about a third of them are thou shalt. I think that's how it breaks down. And Cain and Abel are in the, the, um, uh, the law, in the Torah. Remember, the word Torah means the instruction. The word nomos in Greek is the word law, and it meant what we mean by law, but it also meant uh, the measure. It, it meant uh, um, uh, not quite instruction, but, but how you measure things. Like we use the word metronome. The word nomos is built into that. It's the measuring of the meter, the metronome. So the, the nomos, the law, the Torah, has Cain and Abel in it. And God says after Cain murders Abel that your brother's blood cries out to me. He says, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is yes, you are. So he who speaks evil against his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Now, remember, the word to judge for, for Jews did not mean uh, a forensic, we're in a courtroom. No, a judge was a kind of counselor, that a judge could make legal decisions, but a judge also, you'd go to a judge to get a wise decision. Uh, that was part of judging. And and uh, we read about, was it Deborah who sat beneath the terebinth judging Israel? When we hear that, we think, mm, she's watching Israel going by saying, that color just doesn't work for her. That That's not what it means at all. That people would come to Deborah for wise, for wise counsel and to resolve issues. So uh, he who, he who hates his brother and speaks evil against him is, is doing what Cain did to Abel. And, when I don't hold to the whole law, uh, um, and I, I don't mean that we Christians follow all 613 
uh, commandments. Uh, we follow the 10 because Jesus fulfilled the 613 and the 10 reflect the very nature of God. And so we don't dump the 10, but we don't worry about which side of the altar we put the fat, which is over the kidneys on. We don't have to do that anymore. The Messiah has taught us how to walk. Well, you know, when I say, yeah, the law is fine, except that part. We'll take that part out. We do that all the time. You know that, well, all this traditional desert morality, it's not appropriate to the 21st century. Oh, yes, it is. Humans are not more human than they were when they were first invented by the Lord. So we 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 are counseling. In other words, we are tailoring the law to our situation. That's what it means to judge the law. Uh, um, that, that, yeah, it's, it's all good. All 612 commandments, there's 613. I've taken that one out. It's no longer appropriate. You can't do that. So, uh, that includes speaking, speaking evil of your brother. So I hope that explains, uh, and, and, um, Diane, and we got it. Let's see here. What time are we? We're doing fine time wise. Okay. Then there's one I wanted to get here. This is from Zoila. Uh, I think I answer the question. Why would Jesus ask Samaritan to go to a priest? Uh, because <laughs> Samaritans had priests and they followed the law. Why would a Samaritan be living with Jewish lepers? They were all outcasts. And, uh, the, the, uh, the parable of the good Samaritan, uh, the parables are stories. You're right. But they're stories in which Jesus gives, uh, um, gives us uh, advice, shall we say. Jesus teaches us how to live according to the fulfillment of the law. All right, I hope that helps, Oila. Let's see here. Okay, I got another one here that I think I can do. Oh, comment on the Messiah that the Jews hoped for. This is from uh, from Anne in Chicago. <sighs> There were lots of different opinions as to what the Messiah would be, but the general theory was that he would be a political Messiah. You see, the Torah talks about two Messiahs. Um, or not the Torah, the Talmud talks about two Messiahs. There's the Messiah, son of Joseph. Interestingly, Jesus would have called, been called Jesus, son of Joseph, who prepares the way for the glorious son of David. We just think that they're the same guy, Jesus, son of Joseph, son of David. Uh, but the, the Qumran sectaries, they, they believed in two messiahs. One was the priestly messiah and one was the political messiah. The political messiah, son of David, would make things, uh, um, copacetic, shall we say, and convenient for the true messiah who was the son of Aaron, because they were all priestly families. So they were expecting two messiahs, one of which would be political. One would prepare in, 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 the, in the, with the rabbis. They, they said the one would prepare with the other. Uh, and the, the, uh, the suffering one would prepare for political one by bringing Israel back in, into, uh, into the Holy Land. Uh, the, the priestly Messiah was kind of the opposite, that the, the political Messiah would create, uh, an atmosphere in which the priestly Messiah could could function. So that's what they were expecting. And a lot of people said, hmm, Messiah, no such thing. And that's still true today. Some Jews are waiting for the Messiah and some Jews are not. The Sadducees were not nearly as big on the Messiah as the uh, Pharisees and the Essenes were. I hope that helps a little. Let's see here. Well, why don't we take a break? We'll come back with our word of the day. And the phones are open at 888 914 That's 888 888- 
If you are in the market for health insurance, our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is here to help you and your family find the most cost-effective health plan. Learn more at relevantradio.com slash forester. So true. He does keep giving and giving. And sometimes we say, well, how about a little more of this, a little less of that? Well, no. He gives what we need. He gives what we need, even though we don't think we need it. All right. That said, let us go to the word of the day. In the reading, I think it's really something. They, they stood at a distance from him and raised their voice saying, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And the word in the text is eleison. It's the word we use when we do the Kyrie in Greek. You know, and, and people say, well, isn't that Latin? No, that's Greek. In the Mass, we have Hebrew, we have Greek, we have a little touch of Latin, we have a, a smattering of Aramaic, and, of course, now mostly in the vernacular. Well, Hosanna is Aramaic. It means save us now. Uh uh, amen is Hebrew. It means it's the truth. Uh, uh, and uh, Kyrie eleison, Christ eleison, is Greek. And uh, it's a remnant of when Mass was in Greek. You know, the, the language of the liturgy has changed a number of times over the centuries. And uh, I'm sure people thought, this is terrible. We're doing Mass in Latin. We should be doing it in Greek. You know, I know I, you know, I taught Latin for a long time, and I love the Latin language. But, you know, the, uh, you know, the the uh, flexibility is not a bad thing. But moving along, this is the word that the lepers use: "Have pity on us, eleison." It's a very strong word, and it means it means to have mercy, but um, it means pity. Have pity on us. You know, feel sorry for us, and and I think it's interesting because when you ask someone for pity in English, you're asking that they relent doing to you what they're doing to you, and I wonder if there isn't a recognition in what the leper said of the divinity of Jesus. You know, their condition was leprosy and God, if not causing it, certainly had allowed it. But because they believed that, that skin disease was, and of course we do not believe this and it is not so since the, the, the sacrifice of Calvary, but they believed that leprosy was the result of moral failure and thus it was inflicted on them by God. And so they're asking Jesus to have pity on them. They should be asking God. Well, they are. And I think that's interesting. They realized Jesus had the authority, and they called him epistata, which means one who is over all, one who is over us. They are recognizing, in this word, pity, they are recognizing the divinity of Christ, I suspect. All right, let us now go to uh, phones. 
Hello, this is Dwight Schrute from the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company. What? <laughs> That's a new one. Deborah, what can I do for you from Green Bay? Hi, Father Simon. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the, um, whichever law it is in Leviticus that talks about blood being unclean. I'm referring to the woman who was hemorrhaging for 12 years yes, and yes. any other person who has blood and how they're unclean and stay away from me, yet blood is so important for the sacrifice up in the temple. Could you talk about that or wax on I, it oh, I can poetically? I can talk about anything. I may be wrong, but I can certainly give it a stab. Um, in Leviticus 15.9, it says, it says this. All right, it's rather... All right. When a woman has her regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days, and anyone who touches her will be unclean until evening. Well, this had a double effect. It 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 emphasized the sacredness of women. Oddly enough, we think of it as unclean. Women are are less than no. That that holy things, in a sense, were unclean. In other words, you couldn't touch them unless you were in a, a, a position of real ritual cleanliness, like uh, um, the, the, these sacred things were, they had power in them. And, and so it wasn't just, uncleanness was not necessarily a bad thing. It was just a powerful thing. I, I think that's true. But this, this idea of a flow of blood, it has secondary cause. It it kept people from bothering her. I mean, you know, the, the quarantine of a woman after birth, for instance, that she was unclean uh, for, for, for the, the time after birth. That was great because nobody bothered her. She could bond with her child. These laws of the Torah often have a very practical and, and humane application. Uh, so uncleanness, uh, it had different functions, I think, in, in the Old Testament. So uh, blood was very sacred. Blood belonged to the Lord. That's, it go, that actually goes back in a way to the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were not to touch the fruit of the tree. In other words, this was very powerful, very sacred, and it was in that sense unclean. So uh, blood, the blood of something belonged to the Lord. And when a woman was hemorrhaging, she belonged to the Lord. And if her hemorrhage was continuous, that was a problem because she couldn't be ritually cleansed and brought back into, into her regular tasks and life uh, as long as that flow of blood was, was uh, with her. Does that answer your question? That's super, Father. Thank you so much. I hope it's true. <laughs> I think it is. All right. Uh, all right. Thanks, Deborah. I'm honored that you listen. Let's go to Joe from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Joe, what can I do for you? Hey, Father. Uh, yeah. Two things. One is I heard that you might be nominated to become a Monsignor. I don't think yeah. so. Hell is not frozen over. And besides, I, that's, that's I, I'm old. I had to tease you a little bit. Yes, but, I don't. Uh, I don't think I'm monsignorable. Maybe my nomination finally went through. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, thanks, voice in my head. Oy. All right, what can I do for I you, Joe? Um, I have a, a friend who's a 21 year old nephew. Uh, just committed suicide, and um, oh my. she's she's I know right. She's a 
she's a good nominal Catholic, and I think her family is. So how, I, I'm going to hang up, but can you share a little bit about, you know, what do you say? You know, thank you. Well, and I don't know what you say. You. you just say, you know, I'm praying for you. And, you know, I'm, you know, I'm praying for you and I love you. That's all you can say. I mean, I, I can, it's unfathomable. Let me talk a little bit about, about, uh, what we think about, about, uh, when someone takes his or her own life. In the olden days, we did not even have a funeral for people who had taken their own life. And there's a reason for that that goes back to the early church. Uh, in the early church, they had to deal with the Romans, who committed suicide on a fairly regular basis. When they got tired of life, they committed suicide. When they were accused of a crime by the emperor in order that their family should inherit some of their fortune, they would take their own life. Uh, if they stood trial, the emperor would find them guilty and take everything, leaving their family destitute. It was a volunt There were many more voluntary suicides, and that is absolutely forbidden. Uh, and, and the church was very effective uh, over the millennia of doing away with the idea of, of voluntary suicide. When people take their own lives in the current context, it is usually because of a mental illness, a serious mental illness. And those are often caused by hormonal imbalances, chemical imbalances, that, that in order to commit serious sin, one has to have a full turning of the will and real freedom. So when a person ends their life because of severe depression, they don't, we don't believe that they're necessarily alienated from the mercy of God. On the contrary. So uh, that's that's why we were so hard on suicide in the past to discourage voluntary suicides. But God knows the situation of the soul uh, of the person who who is so depressed that they decide to end their own life. What we have now, however, is a return of cold-blooded voluntary suicide. And so we are, as we throw off Christianity, we're throwing off these strictures. And I wonder if it's not time to uh, once again enforce the ban on, on uh, assisted suicides uh, to, to emphasize this. But as for a person who uh, commits, uh, who takes their own life because of a a mental illness, they are not beyond the mercy of God. We don't believe that. So I hope that helps, Steve, and I will certainly pray for your friend, uh, and and um, um, I can conceive of nothing more, more horrible than than that uh, for a parent. Let's go to, uh, um, where are we going now? Uh, we're going to Steve from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. What can I do for you, Steve? Hi, Father. Uh, regarding matrimony, the church teaches it as a sacrament that it was instituted by Christ. Now, yes. why do we say that when there was marriage for a long time before Christ? For a number of reasons. One of the reasons we say it, Jesus instituted the sacrament of matrimony. Marriage was not a sacrament among the Jews. The word sacrament means an oath to the death. I know of no society before Christ, uh, Roman, Greek, Jewish, which said marriage was an indissoluble covenant initiated by an oath to the death. A contract is, 
I give you that you might give me. A covenant is I give you myself that you might give me yourself. And the mass is the ultimate marriage, the marriage of humanity with divinity. So Jesus instituted the sacrament of matrimony, not matrimony, but the sacrament. Does that answer your question, Steve? I, I think so, yeah. Like, so that before, before Jesus said that, uh, you know, uh, the, the marriage is indissoluable, you know, one man, one woman, I, I forget the quote. That, yeah. That, that that made it permanent until death between a man and a woman, and prior yeah. to that, like the divorce, divorce was easy. Yeah, with, within a Jewish easy. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh, very okay. easy. A man could divorce his wife, according to some schools of thought, if she was a bad cook, if she put too much salt in the stew, uh, or if she was loud in the streets. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and uh -huh. when when Jesus said to the disciples, "For this, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two become one flesh." Uh, they said, if this is so, who would marry? That's The disciples were shocked by that. If this is true, who would marry if you can't get out of it? So, and that's a very modern attitude that we have. Well, well, thanks for calling in, Steve. I hope that helps. Let us go now to Gina. Gina from San Diego, California. What can I do for you, Gina? Hi, thank you for taking my call. So, um, a good friend of mine... Uh, got married very young and she was pregnant mm -hmm. at the time and mm -hmm. on her wedding day her mom said you don't have to do this you know and she did it anyway and she told us later she did it for the baby so anyway yeah. i thought well that sounds like a good reason to get an annulment and he didn't turn out to be a very good husband or father anyway yeah. um yeah. well in the meantime she she hadn't been very active in the church so uh i don't think she cared too much about annulment but i I would mm -hmm. say every now and then, you should think about an annulment. Anyway, long story short, her first husband, uh, she, she remarried, had more kids mm -hmm. and has a wonderful marriage. Um, mm -hmm. And her first husband has passed away. Mm -hmm. So where did that leave her? Um, she, she doesn't need an annulment. Death did them part. No. Yeah, she, she doesn't, doesn't need an annulment, annulment because he's... Because he's passed he's, away. Yes, it's until death do us part. That's, you know, the uh, that's, uh, covenant is binding as long as the covenanters are both alive. Now, her second husband, was he divorced? Yes, he was. Um, he that would, was my next now, question. Yeah. Next, next so, question is... So he needs is, an annulment if they want to have a... Unless, unless he was a Catholic who married outside of a Catholic sacramental marriage. Um, I don't even think he's Catholic. Well, then, then he probably would need an annulment of his first marriage because we respect marriages uh, that are not that are not Catholic uh, because the intention of the Lord was sacramental marriage. So, if two Protestants are married to each other, um, that's we consider them married. So, uh, to get the marriage validated, they wouldn't we wouldn't necessarily call it be married in church or be remarried. They would have their marriage validated that his marriage would have to be investigated as to as to its validity. So, but she's off the hook. You, the first thing you said what? was if he was a Catholic and married a non-Catholic, then that's not no, a requirement? No, if he, was, if he was married outside of a sacramental marriage, you know, two oh, like Catholics. like just went to court or something? Yeah, yeah. If, it was, if, if, if he was a Catholic who had a purely civil marriage... 
he would need to have that. Uh, he he wouldn't have to have that. They would do what they call a a, a a declaration of nullity, which is just getting all the little forms and papers together and saying, yeah, this marriage was never sacramental. It was never blessed by a priest or deacon or witnessed by a priest or deacon. But if he married oh, a non-Catholic, see. that would be binding. It's a little technical. What she should do is she should start going to church, get to know her pastor, and say, I would like to get my my marriage validated uh, um, uh, in the church. Yes. Talk to him. That's what she should do. So okay. That, I hope I'll that start, helps. Uh, make it, yeah. it, it does a lot. I, I'll start making that recommendation to her and see how and she you does know, it. Why does the Catholic Church have to put you through all this? Because marriage is incredibly sacred, and we take it very seriously. Even when it seems that some of the clergy these days don't take it that seriously, we do, and we, God willing, always will. So that's why it is the most, it is the, the, one of the prefaces for the marriage ceremony says it was the one blessing, not washed, not lost in the sin of our first parents, nor washed away in the waters of the flood. So it's a blessing. Well, thanks for calling in, and I hope that helps. Let us go now to Sarah. Sarah, who's calling in from Aurora, Illinois. Sarah, what can I do for you? Hey, hey um, I'm I'm calling the Thessalonians reading on Sunday. Yes, yes. The second reading. Um, you talk a lot about parousia, where we're meeting Jesus, but yep. the reading itself talks about that, but also that we will be taken up. Can you further explain why Catholics think parousia instead of rapture? Because that's the word used in, in, in the early church, and, and it's a more scriptural word. The word rapture itself, the noun, doesn't appear in scripture as a thing. Right. It, the verb appears, we will be snatched up to meet him in the air. And by the air, it's meant the spiritual realm. And whenever, in a sense, whenever we're in prayer and we're snatched up into the spiritual realm to meet him uh, in prayer. But the word rapture is actually not in the Bible. The verb to be snatched up is, uh, well, you're picking the straws. No, I don't think I am. That that uh, um, this is not an event that, that happens um, kind of in one moment. It's It's... It's kind of an eternal going on, I think. So that's how I look at it. I don't know if that helps at all, but the uh, the the uh, uh, the parousia means uh, uh, Christ dwelling with us. He's going to live with us. He's going to come, and we're going to live with him, which is a much a lovelier thing than just getting snatched up. It's it's the whole schmear. We are going to live with the Lord. Uh, uh, he will dwell with us. So. That's very biblical. I will be their God. They will be my people. He's God dwelling among us. And with that that uh, thought, talk about getting snatched up in prayer, we go to Drew. All right. 